Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Braco Diagnostics. Welcome to another MRI cast. This is Bill Faulkner. And this is Kristen Harrington. Welcome, everyone. We do want to, again, be sure we thank Bracco for their unrestricted educational grant. Today's podcast, uh, we are going to take a look at MRI safety uh, from the concept of, you know, it works, you know, what you do, what you're procedures and how you handle it. It works really well for everybody until it doesn't. And we want to take a look at that and perhaps give you some ideas from practical experience of how you can assess your practices and what you do to ensure that they are going to be as safe as possible. And maybe we'll take a look at it from a different perspective for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, what what you said, you know, it works well until it doesn't. That, uh, that applies not just to, you know, MR safety. It applies to everything. Um, so, you know, I think that's true. <laughs> it really, really does. You know, throwing a bunch of ingredients together may come out great, you know, five times but that sixth time if you use a little bit too much garlic then it's all ruined so i don't think uh, there is such a thing i know i think our family agrees um but i (laughs) I think all my my co-workers would say no there definitely is a limit for the garlic um (laughs) so no you know one one thing that i think we both see bill is when we we go to facilities and we look at them um from a risk mitigation perspective, you know, there's certain things that are just phenomenal. So if you think about, you know, looking at policies and procedures, I recently read through um, a facility's fantastic policies and procedures. They were there and um, really um, well-written, okay? Therein lies the problem. Not everybody's read them. Um, you can have highly trained staff, um, level one, level two. All of that can be in place. But is that a box that's checked? We'll talk about that in a second. Is that something that they've just annually gone through? Um, you know, have they checked all those boxes? Um, you can also have a great screening process. You can literally interview someone, ask them all the right questions, you know, anything on you and you that you weren't born with. You can have a phenomenal screening form. Um, You can change all your patients. That's a given. Just change them all. Um, You can have FMD in in place. Um, You can follow the correct modeling where you have, you know, an MR level two tech as well as another level two MR personnel. You can know and have been through the um, motion of doing your mock codes, your mock fire drills. You can have great zone delineation. You can have tensor barriers in the department. So you can have all of these things in place. And the problem that I see is that most facilities are doing several, one, two, three of these things correctly, but I just threw some things out there, um, cathartically, just, you know, things that we run into. So they're great at these several things. And they tell us about that bill. They say, Oh, you know, we do this, we do, and we witness it. But what happens with the other areas? What's your opinion about the other areas that they're not doing great at? Well, you know, the thing about safety and this is, uh, you, you can actually look this up, and there, there's uh, from safety as it relates to airline industry, other types of industries, you know, even healthcare, although uh, you'll find a lot of writing that talks about the weaknesses, uh, you know, that we can run across in, in healthcare. But uh, the the thing that a lot of people look at 
not everybody agrees with it, but nonetheless, I still think it's very valid as it relates to MRI safety is the so-called Swiss cheese model. The looked it up, actually looked it up this morning. Um, just to get a little more first time you've ever heard of it I just thought well, where the crap I'm just joking from, we know? talk about it all the time but I just I, know, but I, never knew, I never knew where it came from uh, according to Wikipedia <laughs> uh, the Swiss cheese model was developed by a James T. Reason uh, University of Manchester in the UK and it's actually been applied in a lot of things. There's even uh, someone that uh, I looked this up to or followed the link that applied the same kind of uh, theory and thinking to some mathematical thing. And I quickly lost interest in that when I was reading it. <laughs> um, so I went back to the original. So the idea is that, <clears throat> you know, you, you take a, a bunch of slices of Swiss cheese and they all have holes in them. And over the, you know, as things are working, the, essentially the individual layers of the Swiss cheese are moving. And, uh, you know, you've got a, uh, a incident or something that happens. So you can picture like these holes lining up and the idea is trying to get through the holes. Actually, I do remember in that mathematic analogy of it, it was like you have all these random holes if you will or spaces and what's the probability of something being dropped from the top making it all the way through to the bottom you know and and so what's the probability of something making it through these holes well if you the, the more layers you have the more layers of safety you have then the which would be different slices of, of the cheese the more layers of safety you have then the less likely something is going to make it through those holes or make it through the spaces you know all the way through <clears throat> where then you would have an incident and the the example that i'd like to use is from a paper that was published in March of uh, 2012 as part of the American Journal of Neuroradiology. It was published as a technical note, and this is actually from a fairly, looking at the authors, this is from a fairly uh, respectable medical center. Now, keep in mind, this is 2012, and this is the case of an 11-year-old girl who, uh, presented for an outpatient imaging of the spine evaluation of scoliosis, okay? Uh, she was going to be sedated uh, using uh, propofol. And so I, I found the full paper, technical note, and um, I want to read you some of the things out of it, keeping in mind that we're talking about, you know, what all can you do, okay? So... Again, the gal was wearing, this is what she was wearing. She was wearing a gray undershirt under a long-sleeved white T-shirt and gray sweatpants. The undershirt was longer than the overshirt and was visible. Now, this site had really good safety practices. Keep in mind, this is 2012. There were no snaps or zippers on the patient's clothing. The patient was screened verbally, visually. And they used a, a hand wand metal detector. Now, I know that metal detectors, and they actually say in here that uh, metal detectors are not uh, encouraged by the ACR. The, the deal with metal detectors is that they don't differentiate between uh, ferrous and non-ferrous. <clears throat> but one of the things that I've heard, and Krista, maybe you can comment on this since you work in pediatrics. One of the things that I've heard that they can be very useful for, and this was from a pediatric hospital up in the D.C. area, is that the metal detectors, although they are very user depend dependent in terms of their accuracy, metal detectors can detect um, the little electrodes that might be left on a patient from that are not ferrous but they're of course they're conductive and so there are uh pediatric facilities i know that use both fmd but also a metal detector for detecting such items have you are you familiar with that yeah i am familiar with that so i guess what i would add um to this is that you know, most of the time people just say, well, just a regular metal detector is useless. 
And um, the situation I'll just throw out there um, is, yeah, I do have a background in pediatrics, but you and I have done so many different facilities, you know, nationwide as far as, you know, pediatrics and their safety practices. Um, But there was a situation where there was just a metal detector. Um, They didn't have the appropriate FMD. But, um, you know, a patient came into a facility, transferred because they were a pediatric, needed to be treated at um, the pediatric hospital, and um, they did have an outside gown on, and um, they were um, not changed. It wasn't metal buttons or anything like that, but what happened was the um, facilities um, had actually, you know, when they, like, hot press these um, gowns and so on and so forth. Well, yeah. somehow the electrodes were hot pressed into the the gown. And had a, a regular metal detector not been used, then they're definitely, especially when you're talking about pediatrics and you're talking about sedation, you know, this would have been a really bad um, situation. And so it was, yeah. caught, it was caught by that. So, you know, I hope that was additive to what you're, you know, what you're talking yeah, about. I, you know, I used to say, you know, they're really worthless. Um, in and of <laughs> themselves, I don't think they provide, you know, sufficient uh sufficient safety but then again it, it's not that they're absolutely worthless anyway so, so going back to this case study here um they also mentioned in here that uh the uh careful attention was paid to avoiding skin to coil and skin to skin contact and contact with any conductive loops i mean they uh <clears throat> likely had the patient um monitored with EKG or something, I mean, because of the propofol sedation. The um, exam was uh, sufficiently long. <laughs> it's, I'm looking at the uh, protocol here. They actually, you know, listed it out with all the SAR and stuff. And there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 sequences. You know what, Bill? Okay. That is a mm-hmm. whole nother podcast right there. <laughs> I know. How to not uh, do 13, 13 reasons well, why. Yeah, well, this is on the spine, you know, so I, I, you know, I guess they were doing, you know, cervical, thoracic, lumbar, I, I suppose. Um, at any rate, uh, Lord, you'd have to sedate me for that. Um, but anyway, so they, following the exam, the patient, uh, when the patient woke up, she complained of right-sided burning discomfort. And when they looked at her flank, uh, there was a linear uh, blistering along the right side of her, her flank and on the uh, and on, on her wrist where on the same side where her wrist was contacting the undershirt because they had her kind of strapped in there. Uh, con- consult diagnosed a second degree burn. Uh, so when they were looking for potential sources for this, uh, the patient noted that her undershirt was called a Boston Silver Tea. Uh, and it's uh, by the National Orthotics and Prosthetic Company store, Boston Brace International, uh, where it was purchased. Um, the uh, this is the type of shirt you would wear under like a back brace to for cool comfort, uh, wicking fibers, that sort of stuff. The family had not been informed that the shirt contained uh, silver metallic fibers, and the uh, burn corresponded with the single uh, shirt seam. Uh, The authors, interestingly enough, just so you know, I didn't realize this, but to the author's knowledge, this is the first reported case of MR imaging related burns with clothing. I didn't realize that that oh, was. Oh, I did not know that uh, either. Um, that's, I didn't either. So 2012. Yeah. So that's. 2012. Okay. okay. Um, they go on to state that the ACR paper on white, uh, ACR white paper on MR safety advises all patients to remove all clothing that would contain hooks, zippers, and so on and so forth. Um, it, it was also stated, and, and this is something that's been in the ACR guidance document for quite some time. Going, and they refer to it as the white paper. So it's been, it's been going back even before then. It's been a long time since I've seen the older versions of it. <clears throat> but it was it, it was advisable to require patients wear a site-supplied gown with no metal fasteners. Um, and they believed their previous policy, 
conform to these guidelines because they advised patients to wear a hospital supplied gown, though they did permit patients to wear loose-fitting, non-metal containing clothing of their own request. So here you go. So there's the hole, okay? They do all that right, but you know, uh, you know, and this is an 11-year-old girl, and she's got the little, you know, T-shirts on and uh, sweatpants and not, you know. They've, uh, they note that they've since revised their policy and now require all patients to change in the site provided clothing. <clears throat> they note that, uh, and this is in, this particular statement is in the ACR manual on MR safety. And I wonder if this is where it came from, given uh, some of the authors on here. But it states that fabric content labeled regulated by the Federal Trade Commission allows for 5% impurities. Um, uh, and so that's interesting to note. Um, the, then I'll conclude with this part of it here. It's inter- another thing I wasn't aware of until I read through this. Uh, Boston silver T-shirt showed no visible evidence labeling evidence to indicate that it contained uh, silver metallic fibers. And again, because of its, it was purchased because of its perspiration wicking and antimicrobial characteristics. This is an interesting statement. The manufacturer has since voluntarily modified its label to identify the silver content with the trade label ecstatic to specifically warn against use MRI examination the shirt still contains no attached content label. So, you know, once again, retroactive behavior. So that's what we're talking about is we're being reactive and that's not what we need to be in MR. Right. Well, you know, and to be fair, if you didn't know about it up front and this being the first time it's been reported, then, you know, we find this out. So here's the, here's the point people here. We've got a great example of people saying, you know, uh, as we look back at it, this was where we did everything well. We, we had really good safety practices, but this one thing bit us, you know, and to this day, it is amazing to me that people still don't change patients. I talked to um, someone the other day that was relaying an incident uh, to me and uh <clears throat> it actually something happened because a patient had something in their pocket and they didn't change the patient out of street clothes other than the t-shirt and cargo shorts and the patient had something in their pocket i won't go into too many details of this right now but this came out and there was an injury patients of course suing and um, the reality is that their policies make, from what I understand, their policies make an exception for certain patients. And as such, uh, because of what this patient was having scanned, they didn't change the patient. And So why should there be are, an exception? Well, I don't know why there should be an exception. Because, well, I think probably the reason there's an exception, because it makes it easier for the staff right? It's easier for the staff. It's more convenient, if you will, sometimes for the patients. When you make exceptions to something that you know you should be doing, then you have a, you have an area right here where things can happen. And, um, Convenience does not mean safety, you know? (laughs) Yes, we want, so you create these areas for exceptions and, um, you know, I think what we're getting at, you know, here, everyone is there should be no exceptions. Yes, it does. Okay, well, here's the exception. And I only have this, you know, 12 minutes to do, you know, 13 series. And so because I have this exception, then I don't have to, you know, do this action, change this patient in this scenario, and I can keep going and keep on my schedule. And so I, I there should be no exceptions. We have all these policies and procedures, but you make exceptions to it, then you allow room for error. And so you want multiple layers of safety. And the the important thing to remember is with these multiple layers of safety that we'd like to walk through here in just a moment, give some examples. And these multiple layers of safety, no one layer is perfect on its own. And the, the best example I can give of that 
is uh, if, you know, we say this all the time, you know, the technologist is the last line of defense, and that's absolutely true. Technologist is the last line of defense. But the trouble uh, is when the technologist is the only line of defense. And so that's not, no one layer is perfect on its own. Okay. And so uh, as you look at this, let's talk about some of these layers of safety. One layer of safety would be the staffing, staff modeling. This is a real difficult time thing right now because I'm talking to a lot of sites. It is just absolutely hard to find technologists. I'm sure you've heard that <laughs> before. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's what I'm hearing, you know, across the nation that, you know, we just can't find, you know, anyone to actually just, you know, fill the spot. And so that is, um, you know, again, it's just a huge deficit and so then you've got these people that are filling these spots, whether it's temporary or, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and that um, can be very problematic because they don't necessarily go through all of the training. They don't necessarily get, you know, the opportunity to go through that true orientation to even try and reach, look forward to that MR safety, you know, the goals. Um, they don't even get that far. Well, that's true. And, you know, one of the things when you talk about and not to, you know, to talk negatively about, uh, you know, what we're referring to here is is contract or, you know, temporary personnel who come in to fill in, you know, take a six, 13 week, 14, you know, whatever assignment. Uh, these people look to come in and fit in. You know, so they, they don't want to be disruptive. And so they want to come in and they want to fill in with uh, how things are done at that facility. So if you have these conditions that are there, uh, sometimes referred to as latent conditions that have just been around for a long time that create this kind of a risk when you have somebody coming in, this condition or practice or process simply continues. Yeah, I I think that's one thing that is very stressful, and you and I've run into this, is that with you know the um, the people that come in for you know a short term solution, um, they you're right, they want to fit in, and you and I've spoken to people, and what we've recognized is this person may come in, and they may have you know all of the credentialing, but they may also follow. Um, that and and do that as their best practice. So then you go into a facility, you're going to be there for a short period of time. Obviously, we want to work together in healthcare, but you walk in and you've got someone that's been there 8, 10, 20, 25 years, and they're doing some things that are unsafe. So you walk in day one and it's kind of like, well, I guess that's safe most of the time. So just go with me here. I mean, okay, so I'm going to, I want to fit in here. And that's the way they do it. Um, they only change patients for, you know, this situation or that's, you know, they don't change in this situation. But because I want to fit in for my time while I'm here, then I'm just going to go with that. I think there is that pressure on these people that are doing an amazing job to fill in that that gap that's there. But there's there's pressure on them. And then you've got some people that have been doing the latent, um, the their behaviors and the way that they actually practice is not in the safest manner. It, it, it puts the, the people that are there temporarily, it kind of it kind of uh, pigeonholes them. Is, is that a, an appropriate phrase? I suppose, unless you're a pigeon, I suppose. <laughs> well, you know the the going back to one more thing on the on the staffing here. The you know ACR says that they support the VA uh, hospital or administration veteran administration's policy of a of a two person model, and and it's not two techs. It doesn't have to be two techs. It could be two techs, but it doesn't have to be two techs. It needs to be, if you look at the way it's phrased, it needs to be two people who are MR safety trained. So obviously one's going to be uh, a technologist. Uh, and then at least if you're doing it this way, we've, we've done some talks about, or we've done some uh, a podcast on remote scanning. So we're not going to get into that. But uh, you've got the technologist there, and then you can have someone else who is MR safety trained. Uh, 
an MR technologist aid. We've talked about that as well in the remote scanning. And I think if you have uh, that, then you, you've got that covered. You know, let's take the even barest bones uh, type of operation where you would have uh, a technologist and then you only other person at the, in the facility, say it's an MR only facility, then the only other person would be the receptionist. Well, that receptionist needs to be within earshot and that receptionist needs to be MR safety trained so that and ready to assist in the event of an emergency. <clears throat> and you have to you have to take that emergent situation in consideration because in the event of an emergency, you've got to respond to the patient and you've got to take care of the patient while at the same time uh, quickly and safely removing them from the uh, MRI environment to a safe place. So this is something that needs to be addressed at all facilities. This is a layer. This is a layer that if it's if it's not dressed, uh, addressed then, you know, you've got you've got that hole. Now, um let's next look at something that I believe is a really good practice and that's to pre-call the patient. Uh, a couple of days out before their exam. And there's a lot of good reasons to do this. Uh, yeah. Me my... <laughs> yeah. Do you want let to give your get... opinion first and then I'll go right in? Yeah, let me let me tell you why I think this is done. I think it's best if it's done by an MRI technologist because uh, it gives the patient, you give the patient a chance to ask questions. You remind the patient of when their exam is, where their exam is, if you have multiple locations, you uh, tell the patient, uh, be sure you don't wear any jewelry. So you'd like them to leave all that crap at home so you don't have to deal with it. You obviously ask them if they have anything on them or in them they weren't born with. So, you know, if, if they do have something, then you can get information up front, maybe start the research on that. And also tell the patient that you will be changing clothes. Um, and as an aside, I don't like the mention of claustrophobia in any shape, form, or fashion because I don't want them thinking about it. So that that's my... Um, wish list, if you will, of, of a pre-call. Yeah. You know, the thing I'll add to that is um, definitely it can be done. So you said it's best if it's done by a, a, an MR tech. And I would definitely say that, but you can also have a highly trained MR tech aide um, that can be extremely beneficial in being able to do this. You know, these are people that are, are trained to level two, and um, they can actually, they help you screen the patients. They do all of these things. And so I think that they, um, as, as long as they're trained appropriately, can be very beneficial in that role as well. Um, the other thing that I have seen, I've done pre-calls. And you want consistency um, across the board. And there is nothing uh, wrong with actually creating a script. So I used to, um, when I was in corporate, I used to um, have to, uh, my staff had to do 24 hour reports. So after the first day, so I just kind of did, you know, a script. These are the things we want, we want to hear, you know, this is day one at such and such facility. And what you're saying is the same thing. Hi, you know, this is, is this the parent of blank. Um, you know, and you leave a message and you go through this script and um, then, you know, it's going to feed into everything we're talking about today. It's kind of muscle memory. You're going through, you know, this is the facility, you know, we've seen your, if you do pre-screening, you know, online, you know, if they have a form, that's fantastic. You also remind them of all the things you've just spoken about. And um, then you definitely give them your callback number. And then you you know, put all the notes in and then hopefully you're going to get them in person, but nobody answers anymore because everything says spam. And um, so, you know, more than likely you are going to leave that message. And, but I think that having that script to read off of, you know, you may think it's, it's just really good to know that you're going through all the key points and covering everything that you need to. Um, I had an MR um, back in February of this year and someone called me and they did not tell me what their role was. 
And um, they just asked me some pretty crazy questions. This was considered a pre-screen. And um, I found it to be like almost overwhelming um, and extremely underwhelming at the same time, um, the questions that they ask and um, how that translated, which we'll get to, I guess, into when I arrived at the facility for the MRI, you know, it, it was pretty interesting. When you make these pre-calls, you should go by a script and then the way it translates to the level two person that's getting this information, whether it be in the computer, medical records, wherever it's recorded, that needs to translate so that the technologist or level two trained personnel that's taking over once they arrive in that department knows exactly where they left off to fill in those gaps, whether it was a voicemail, whether they talked to them in person, any issues that might arise. Don't you don't you agree that should like synergistically? That's a big word for me today. Um, That should fit together. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about that. So when the when the patient arrives, you know, it's not uncommon today for a site to give a patient uh, a safety form and tell the patient to fill it out. There's obviously things about that that you want to be cautious of. Uh, the form should be thorough. It should be uh you should have some repetition. Uh, things may should be stated twice in a different way. Uh, if you've not had a chance to look at it, recommend that you take a look at the current ACR recommended screening form uh, that you can find uh, online very easily. If you just Google ACR MR safety screening form, uh, should pop right up. Uh, it's a very thorough form, multiple pages. Uh, it's spaced out a little bit, but I like the way it's kind of got stuff segmented into personal items, medical things. Uh, that's certainly something that I think would be a minimum needs to be asked what the, what's on that form. I, I, uh, I, I got to agree with you. And I think this is what we're pointing out here is something that is so critical. People complain. Yes, it's like six or seven pages long. Yes, it's repetitive. I love repetition, um, you know, I, I, redundancy. You know, I think that it's a good thing. But what people have to realize is this is absolutely the most critical part before you put a patient on the table, before you look at the order, before you do anything. The screening process is absolutely, I would say, you can go ahead and, and debate it, but I would say it's it's okay if it's six or seven pages because you need to know this information. Right. And you need to, you know, you need to go over this. And this is the part that I, I think may be a hole in some people's practices. Uh, the patient needs to be screened verbally, uh, interactively with a level two personnel. And the ACR has been very clear on that for many years. Uh, when we, uh, when I started an MRI in 85, when we first started doing MRI here in Chattanooga, first MRI facility in Chattanooga, we actually referred to this process as an interview. We said, have you interviewed the patient? Has the patient been interviewed? We never, we didn't use the word screening. Um, and it's, it is an interview where we take the form and we went over the form question by question with the patient. And People tend to not do that so much anymore, and it creates a risk that something's going to be missed. Um, I should point out Frank Shellock Scott has always had for many years yeah. a very thorough screening form online that you can use as well. And, you know, this is not walking down the hall and saying, oh, I don't see anything. This is not a straight line. My heart rate's going mm-hmm. up right now, you know. You know, you call it an interview and you and I do a lot of MR safety officer courses, you know, things like that. To me, it's a conversation. You're creating a rapport with this person. We like for the scanning technologist to be the one or the person MR tech aide that's going to be, you know, putting them on the table. We want to create that baseline. So they'll tell you, you and I both know there's been incidents where people don't want to disclose things that have been pretty nasty accidents that have happened. So I I think it's really important. Again, I call it a conversation because I'm trying to create that common denominator so I can pull and get as much information and to trigger as many things. And you remember that situation where someone said, oh, you know, anything on you or in you. 
And, you know, an older gentleman said, well, you know, when I was really young, you know, they, they went in and they put a little clip. This is the, this is true. You know, they put a little clip in my head, but that's, you know, that's a long time ago. Okay. So a long time ago doesn't mean it's actually, you know, it's, 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 <laughs> it, it scares you the, well, as we say in the South, but Jesus, you know, out of you, you know, but it's about that conversation or about that interview. Um, and, and, in order to catch these things and the redundancy talk about the straight lines, Bill. I mean, you know, they oh, yeah. just, well, if you, you know, if you just, you see a form with a straight line down all the nose, you know, for a fact, they didn't read it. Um, and, and this is, this is a, you know, extreme danger that you, you don't want to miss something and shortening this form, making it convenient people with, you know, straight lining. I mean, we've got an example from a friend of ours that had a straight line on one screening form, came in a few weeks later, did another screening form and then checked uh, a yes to, I think it'd been hit in the eye with metal or something like that. Um, and, and it didn't happen in, in the intervening process. So, you know, just to reiterate this on the safety part, it needs to be uh, thorough, complete, and performed by trained individuals. Uh, we've mentioned, um, going down my list, we've mentioned changing the patient. <clears throat> just one more thing. There's two, two things about changing patients, reason you do it. Um, when I was uh, talking with a site that was telling me about uh, the person had the cargo shorts and they had an item in their pocket that they didn't remove and it came out and caused an injury. Uh, they also mentioned that, oh, by the way, uh, they were just wear also wearing their undershirt, which was a, a moisture wicking undershirt. And my response was, well, dodge the bullet on that one because, you know, it could have been, could have been a burn because they were in fact having a scan on the upper part of the upper part of their body. So there's really two reasons to change people. Uh, one of course is the originating from this paper that I went through about the burn, but there's also uh, crap in pockets that people won't take out. And so you need to do that. And one more thing on changing people, it is a really good idea to uh, provide them anti-slip stockings. All the hospitals have them. And in fact, I think now most of the time you go in a hospital, they're going to give it to you anyway, give you a pair of those anti-slip stockings. And I see that a lot of times in, uh, in MR facilities. And, it, and it's not so much for metallic fibers and socks, because that can occur, but it's also because you don't want to slip and fall uh, to occur. Now, what's interesting is in the same um, incident with the cargo shorts and the atom in the pocket, um, the I'm told the facility also had, and this is a good time to bring this up, leading to it, ferromagnetic detection. Uh, however, it wasn't used. Okay. Um, or maybe they said it didn't work. Well, you know, I hear that a lot of times yeah. from people who will say they have, you know, the FMD around the door and it's like, uh, well, it doesn't work. What people, do you mean it doesn't it work? Works. It's, it's you not, <laughs> not following. I mean, these things work right. phenomenally. They are, they are so, they're so critical in this whole safety process, but you know, we hear all the time, you know, we just unplugged it cause it doesn't work. No, it works. Or or the, or worse that they don't unplug it, it just it goes off all the time. So you know, when somebody says to me it doesn't work, I go, What do you mean it doesn't work? I go, Well it goes off all the time. I go, doesn't that mean it's working? Um well it just goes off all the time. Well, it's because you're wearing stuff that's got ferrous material on it <clears throat> or items, and every time you walk in and out of the door it beeps and then you 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 no longer uh, pay attention to it. And that's called alarm fatigue. Uh, and it's alarm fatigue has actually been shown to be a large contributor to patient safety issues uh, in medicine, particularly in like the ICU where these alarms are going off all the time and nobody pays attention to it. And, and yes, people have died. If you talk to, talk to respiratory people, they've died because again, of this alarm fatigue, nobody pays attention to it. So I have a child you know. um, that was in um, ICU 
um, many, many years ago. Everybody's all good. So, but it was a stressful time. And um, so, you know, I I was in there and he kept desatting. Just, I mean, he was just going, you know, 88, you know, and so the alarm was continuously going off. And so, but no one, I would ring the bell and nobody was answering. I understand that they are overworked and there's so much going on. They were really, really busy. Um, but my child's desatting and I know that, you know, they, they need to respond to it, but they've got this fatigue and, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, it's 88. No, it's my child and it's 88. You need to get that above 94, you know, now, but it's because of that alarm fatigue. And the same thing happens in MRI. If you continuously hear something, you know, think about it like this. I don't hear I mean, I always have it on the background, so I know it's there. I would know if it wasn't there. I don't really hear the the noise from the MRI machine. Um, I don't really hear the chiller. But I'll tell you what, if the chiller's not working or if the scanner's not going, I can hear it then. But I've kind of detuned myself to the noise. And the same thing happens with this alarm fatigue with the FMD. So people, you don't just need to check off a box. We have it. You need to use it. It will save you in many situations because, Bill, you and I both know there's many, well, several um, papers that have been released that sometimes the FMD, depending upon whether it's the handheld, the single pillar, um, you know, the the big ugly sucker, you know, around the door, they can actually, you know, detect um, implants and devices in some situations that might have been missed otherwise if it's used appropriately. Absolutely. So that's that's the thing. If you're checking a box, it's, it's, that doesn't do you any good is, is if you use it. So for the ones around the door or at the door, in order to minimize the alarms on that, the staff really should be dressing Ferris free. And that's, that's a whole other topic at some point in time, I'm sure. Uh, we talked about the handheld, uh, you know, there's metal detectors, but there's also handheld FMDs. Those can be very useful for small uh, children uh, targeting uh, certain areas, patients that perhaps can't walk. Um, then there's the single pillar type systems where you stand in front of them, turn 360. Those have been shown to be extremely uh, sensitive, and, and I would absolutely want one of those in a facility that I was managing so that people are checked before they get into go, get into zone three. So uh, again, we can do a whole podcast and maybe we will sometime on ferromagnetic detection in great detail. But the point is, if you have them, but you're not using them and you're not using them appropriately, or how about this? They're not used consistently. They're not used consistently on a day-to-day basis, or they're not used consistently between staff members. Uh, this, you know, can make it make it very, very problematic. Um, <clears throat> the last thing I want us to talk about, as we are getting kind of close to time here, is uh, access control, <clears throat> controlling access, controlling access to, and, and there's really two areas here. Uh, that we're referring to. Number one would be the classic uh, access into zone three and into the MRI environment between zones two and three. That needs to be restricted. And the ACR is very clear that that restriction needs to be specifically for MR personnel, that is level one, level two trained personnel. And that access should be tied to annual training. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to say this about being tied to annual training. Well, first of all, let's do the annual training. Okay, let's, you know, let's actually pay attention to it. But second of all, with the access control, not all the facilities that we see actually are able to um, really, um, truly um, create, you know, um, a keypad, a badge access. They're not able to to do that because it's very expensive um, well, you don't if they don't have a door. I mean, you know, let's let's say they've got a hallway that's coming down to the MRI area, but they don't have a wall of the door. Yeah, and you, you can't know? just put that. Say, oh, let's put a wall up. You know, <laughs> well, there, let's, yeah. yeah, we need a wall. And so we, you and I, have had to be very, um, I don't know, innovative, or I don't know, we're we're special. And so we have to think of different ways in order to delineate. Um, these different zones. And so, you know, you can do that. We can be very creative. And so we've said, okay, 
why don't you get tensor barriers? Let's go ahead because, you know, you've got, you know, CT across from MR, all of this being in zone two, you know, no, no badge access whatsoever. So you've got like, let's say an MR across from a CT and then kind of, you know, at an angle from there, you've got an x-ray room. And so then you have a tensor barrier. It's fantastic. You know, it, it's going to go right across at an angle and, and block going into zone four. It does delineate. There is a difference. It's kind of like when you're at the airport. Tensor barriers are those things at the airport that, you know, people either crawl under if they need to get somewhere else or people lift them up so you can walk around them. But they they do um, create this, oh, I'm not supposed to be on the other side of that. But the problem that I have seen um, is that they'll have a tensor bear. And you've seen this with me. One time it was in someone's cabinet at the um, MR facility. Um, oh, we have it, but we just haven't gotten it out. Then I've actually seen it out at facilities, but they're not using it. Yeah, I mean, if you, uh, they're very useful. I mean, you can pretty much put them put them anywhere. You can have them that attach to the wall, and then you just grab it, pull it out, slide it over. Sam, they say you can get them. They're yellow. They say caution. Uh, I've seen people hang signs uh, around them or something. Not do not enter unless accompanied by an MRI technologist or something to that effect. So you know you can use them to create a barrier where where you don't have a door or a wall. And, and I think. Yeah. The, just put the, on there. Yeah. Do not enter. Do not enter. I mean, it's right. like a construction. Danger, danger, danger. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and a lot of people really are hesitant to cross a, cross a barrier. They'll open a door, but they really won't cross a barrier for some reason, or they tend not to. Then the other place that, uh, this type of a barrier of some sort, and there are multiple, uh, ways to do this is to put something across the scan room door zone four the acr uh actually makes a recommendation of that uh in their mr manual and mr safety that you should have some sort of rope chain barrier whatever i forget exactly how they word it but a tensor barrier will actually work as there as well that goes across the scan room door that stays up and stays activated or used uh, especially if you're having to go in and out of the room and but then again we see oftentimes where if they're not consistently used then it can create uh, a safety issue so and, and there's other things. There's a company, uh, Aegeus, I believe is how it's pronounced. They make a very uh, sophisticated uh, so-called barrier that, for all intents and purposes, like a railroad crossing uh, that can be automatically activated. You know, it's, it's not as inexpensive, obviously, as a plastic chain or a detensor barrier, but there are things out there that address this concept of protecting or controlling access but you know they have to be used i mean so yeah <laughs> you know going back i know we're getting close to time but when you think about um you know the the staffing shortage um and then the managers maybe are remotely located and they they purchase the tensor barriers and they get you that you know home depot chain um you know to go across you know, the door and they they give you all the tools all the tools because we can't put in a wall. We can't do these things, but here's all of this stuff to actually help to mitigate the risk here. Do not enter danger, danger, but they're not being, it's, it's hard to monitor and enforce using that based upon how the staffing models are now. And if it's there and it's not used, well, we, you know, that's where accidents happen. And that's what this whole thing is about. All the things we told you, you can have all of this, but if it's not used, if you don't have the actual training, you don't really understand it, if you don't call the patients before, you don't screen them correctly, this is where, that going back to that Swiss cheese model, this is where accidents happen. They do, and they can be deadly. And and that's our, you know, that's, I guess, if we could summarize what we've, what we've been through today, uh, you know, going back to the very first thing we said, you know, you can have, uh, you've got to have good and solid uh, policies and procedures. They have to be reviewed. Uh, you need to have trained staff. You need to have uh, MR medical director, MR safety officers. 
Uh, you've got to have a great screening process and a form for all of that. You've got to consistently change the patients, uh, consistently uh, use ferromagnetic detection. Um, look at your staffing. Make sure that you can safely and effectively uh, Remove somebody from the scan room uh, quickly and safely in, in an emergent situation. Uh, make sure everyone knows how to handle that. And also make sure that you're doing a good job in minimizing the amount of people that have access to your environment. Again, the ACR clearly says it should be level one, level two personnel only. You can have... Uh, Badge access is the way we, we think it should work, where you know, that badge access is tied to your personnel designation, to your training. Um, look at all of your policies and procedures and think of them as layers. Think of them as layers, and each layer has a specific purpose. And don't find yourself in situations where or facilities in their in these situations where some of these layers begin to be missing and nobody notices or maybe the layer is removed or the layer is not used appropriately so that layer is not there but everything seems to be working fine and it's working okay well then the next thing you know another layer disappears or another layer becomes useless and you're getting less and less layers over time but everything appears to be working until it doesn't and that's really the what we've been hoping to get across to you on, on the podcast today chris any last uh, thoughts well i think that you and i could talk about this i mean forever and i think that it just needs to be ever present in um everyone's minds um, everything that we've discussed today and, and it may seem like we talked about little things but these little things you know Talking about that Swiss cheese model, it's the little things that can literally lead to um, horrific consequences. And, and that's what this is about. You know, yeah, it's all good and well until something happens. You know, everybody's playing on the playground, you know, pushing each other around, throwing, you know, hitting baseballs, whatever. And then, bam, you know, something bad happens. And, and we, we want to um, just help all of you to try and not have that experience. We're trying to help you to reduce or eliminate that completely. So, you know, I think it's been a, it's been a great um, discussion. And uh, so, you know, I think, I think it's wonderful. And I, I hope everyone has something to take away from it. Well, we do appreciate uh, those of you that take time to listen. We, I was told the other day, we're up to around 19,000 subscribers and it's a massive number. We're, we're very honored with that. And again, we want to thank uh, Baraco Diagnostics for their unrestricted educational grant. And that's going to bring us to the end of another MRI cast. Thank you all for uh, tuning in. Thank you for subscribing. And have a great rest of your day unless you've got other plans. We're out of here. Just get, get used to it. All right. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Bye. You've been listening to MRI Cast. This program is made possible by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics. Mm -hmm.